Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? That if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone. I just want to pause at this point. God, your presence with us so far this morning has just been so helpful, so powerful, and so real. And I'm so grateful for that. And I pray that you would linger as we try to understand a hard passage and a passage that has been in many contexts used to, to hurt and do the opposite of why you inspired it. God, help me and cause me to be faithful. And um, I pray that this would be a time that is helpful for our people and not just our people, but all those who, are, uh, who might be listening. Yeah, we offer this to you, God. Be glorified and also give us Relief and help and joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're doing this? Okay, let me take you back to, to uh, 2006. And um, I'm at a conference, and one of my biggest theological heroes is the keynote speaker. And uh, I, during the break, I thought I'd take advantage of a chance to go talk to him. He's like a, a, a leading, prominent complementarian. If I said who he is, uh, you'd, you'd know exactly who I'm talking about. But so I, I approached him. We had a, a really good conversation. He was very kind. But my, my main question that I wanted to ask him was whether he believes that women serving in the role of teachers and pastors in a church, whether like that's a sin. Like, is that is that a sin issue? Or is it some other kind of distinction or difference. And, and he was honest and kind with me in his answer. He said, it is not the most serious sin a person could commit, but yes, it is a sin. To be honest, that's like my, that was the first major disagreement that I can remember having with one of my heroes. Because if he's right about that, then when somebody like Beth Moore here, when she gets up in front of an audience and of, of men and women and she teaches the Bible and she's inviting people to repent and to trust Jesus, then, then that's a sin. And, and, and in other words, like Jesus is on the cross 2,000 years ago. And if, if for no other reason, one of the things that Jesus is dying as a substitute for is because there are women like Beth Moore and other women who over the years are going to teach scripture in the gathered church. And I just, I understand the argument. I, under, it's, it, I, I just don't see it. I don't see it in, in scripture. And, and that's where the fault lines really started to form for me. So hear me out, okay? Um, because I need to tell you about my wife, Heather, from whom I have learned so much over the years about, about this stuff. Heather's the first woman I knew who ever uh, had the, the, the head covering tradition as part of her church and her upbringing. And, uh, and, and when Heather moved from her home church to University of Guelph, she had to find a church and she wrestled with whether it was hypocritical for her to wear her head covering at her home church, because that was the tradition there, but whether she should wear it also at these other churches. So the thing is, when Heather would be at home and she would wear her head covering there, she kind of got the stink eye from some of the people there because it was like she's this worldly, you know, woman who went to university and isn't at home with the kids. And when she did wear the head covering to some of these other churches, they looked down on her. They kind of gave her the stink eye because it was like she had been brainwashed. She was like this old-fashioned cave woman. And, and that's not all right. Now, Rebecca shared her, some of her story with me this week. She told me that she grew up in a, a church that she thought valued women, but it turns out the culture of this church is one where women were better seen and not heard. And she told me that at one point, they, the church needed a, a, a treasurer, okay? Somebody to manage the finances of the church. And the most obvious choice, the most competent person for the job was a woman who in her profession, she was actually an accountant, all right? Well, she was passed over, in, in, for the role of, of treasurer. And the reason seems to be culturally in that church that women can't be trusted with that much power. 
like the power to determine, to manage the finances of the church. That's just too much power. We can't trust a woman with that. Just so you know, you can't make scripture say that. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tradition. It certainly, it certainly makes sense through a certain patriarchal framework, but that, it doesn't matter. Like it just, it, that's just how they treated this woman. Um, I could tell you about Rachel. Rachel is, that's not her name, but she was a, a, she's a friend of mine who was part of our undergrad campus ministry. And she, she's a, a beautiful, intelligent, godly, uh, available Asian woman. Okay. And she called herself complementarian. And at the time, none of us really knew what that meant. Very early into her time there, she got engaged to my, a buddy of mine who is, who was like the most, one of the most conservative, awkward, nerdy guys in the group. And when that happened, we were all gobsmacked. And it was interesting because one of the things that happened was that behind her back, these people, people whispered uh, about Rachel. Maybe the reason that she chose this guy and not others was because her patriarchal Asian culture conditioned her to want a conservative guy. So, of course, none of these people asked her. None of these people asked themselves whether maybe the reason they, they jumped to that conclusion is because they have a stereotype and, and maybe they've been con- culturally conditioned themselves. They just looked down on uh, this poor woman because she wasn't as egalitarian as they assumed that she should be. There's no Bible that's part of the conversation. There's no converse, there is no conversation face-to-face. There's just judgment and whispering and, and gossip. And that's not okay. Well, there's more. Because Brittany Ann shared some of her story with me this week. She shared about how she grew up in a home where she had a loving mother who raised her three kids and she was totally dedicated to those kids. And that was Brittany Ann's paradigm for, for parenting. And, and in parallel, she also knew from about age six that God wanted her to be a physician. Except all her life, as Brittany Ann grew up in different church circles and is hearing messages either from Christian dudes or from church ladies, or from famous like rock star pastors on the internet, the message is that unless you're a stay-at-home mom and you seek a you know you go and seek a profession somewhere outside the home that takes you away from your kids for a time, that is a, that is out of God's will for women. And Brittany Ann told me that it led to countless tears and distress and a sense of deep fear of what to do with my life. I sensed God's calling deeply to both be a mother and a physician, and I was disoriented and deeply hurt by the church's disbelief in God's ability to give a woman a calling for both of these things. To me, that's abusive. It's abusive. And it's not because a stay-at-home mom is some kind of a lesser calling. It is a very high calling. The problem here is that nobody's using scripture. They're just using stereotypes. And it's not okay. It just does harm. Well, one more. My friend Sharon, uh, she's a, a kind of a ministry colleague I've, I've gotten to know over the years. She was a lead pastor in a denomination that ordains women. And she had a, a fruitful ministry. And she, over, she eventually started revisiting some of the gender passages in scripture, like the one that we just heard read. And long story short, after a lot of study and a lot of prayer, uh, she concluded that she's actually in a role that isn't meant for her. And she resigned. Like she stepped down as the lead pastor of this church. Quite against, I should say, quite against the advice of most of the people, either in the church or in her life. Lots of folks behind her back, they, they judged her and they said things like, well, just like think of what the complementarians will say. Think of all the progress that we've made uh, in this issue. Think of, uh, think of your family. And it was interesting that like all of her intelligence and all her maturity and character that they thought qualified her to be a lead pastor, that none of that counted when it came to this decision to step down because now it was couched like she's betraying uh, the egalitarian cause. And, and I could go on and tell more stories like this. The pattern, though, is the same. You, it's these systems, these stereotypes, and these, these teams, and these labels, and they are doing more harm than good. They're doing more harm than good. Now, when we first started this series a bunch of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, 
I knew that this passage was coming. I had sort of mixed feelings about it, but I felt like ready. I've, this is something I've done some some study about over the years. I've I've taught courses on this. I've taught. I've I've spoken on it before. And and I realized though that it would be very easy because like like I recognize that I am a I am a white male pastor and I have never been excluded from something in ministry in church world on the basis of my gender. And I know because I approach this from, from that sort of vantage point that it could be that this is just one more issue that we tackle in this series, just like divorce and, and marriage and sexuality and purity culture and, and power and all, all of these other things. What I want to say, though, is that this needs to be a different kind of message. And I'm, I'm really grateful that so many of you have, have reached out and you've shared your stories and I, I hear you and I, I want to say I thank you and I'm, I'm listening and I am learning. And for that reason, I think this needs to be a different kind of message. The, those stories that you've shared, they are, they are, they're touching me, they're shaping me and how I communicate this. Um, and, and I want to be, as, I want to do the best that I can to not only be faithful to the text, but also to be as sensitive as I can be and as respectful as I can be uh, of your stories. And in the end, in the end, if you feel that I have either like misrepresented the text or if you have, feel I've, I've maybe misrepresented your view or your objections or your questions, I want to hear that. So you can share that with me. You can text that to the number that's at the bottom of your screen there because I want to hear that feedback because I want to make it right. Maybe the last thing I'll say here is I actually suspect that more people are going to listen to this message uh, than usual. Can't imagine why. But um, if, if for those people, if you're tuning in after the fact, I just want to ask you to please hear me out, okay? Don't judge. Don't, don't turn it off before you've listened all the way through. Okay, because when I'm done, just so you know, when I'm done here as a church, we're going to worship in, by, in song together. We're going to take communion together with some of the stuff that we have at hand in our own places. We're going to at the end of the very at the very end of the service, we're going to open up this call and we're going to have some discussion so that we can talk these through these things through in community. And if you're only listening to this message after the fact, you missed all that stuff. So my aim today is, is, is pretty simple. I actually, my aim to sh today is to show why Paul is neither a complementarian nor an egalitarian, okay? And in fact, my goal is to show that it's actually a very big mistake to force Paul into one camp or another or to force a text like this into one camp or another. And to see that, um, we need a few definitions. Uh, we need some, some observations from the text. I want to, the third part is I want to share a warning for us. And then I want to share some good news. And then part five is I want to share a word of hope. Okay, some words of hope for the church. Uh, I know that sounds like a lot, but we will we'll get out of here before supper time. I promise. Let me uh, let me begin by sharing what I think we can all agree on, which is some some definitions. We need to be speaking the same language. So there's basically two camps or two views that we're talking about vis-a-vis -vis gender in the church. Okay. So the first is an egalitarian. And an egalitarian is someone who believes that men and women are equal, okay? Utterly equal in Christ before God. And that, and that, that equality is shown by removing all sort of gender-based distinctions and removing power hierarchies between men and women, okay? That's, that's an egalitarian. Egalitarianism believes more than that, but not less, Okay? The other side of this discussion is a complementarian. And a complementarian believes in equality, but, and this is a big but, that there are distinctions in the ways that men and women serve in the church. And, and so a complementarian would say that even though we're equal, the differences between men and women complement and reinforce and, and enhance one another as they are walked out in the ministry of the church. And once again, there is more to complementarianism than that, but there's not less. And, and those are the views. Okay, those are the sort of those are the line, those are the, the battle sides here. And, and 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 it would be great if we could agree to disagree on this issue like we do about baptism or about like speaking in tongues or the age of the earth. But this one, we know, we kind of know, don't we, that this one is far more charged. You know, we we know that passages like this one 
are, are hard to hear. And, and people have twisted them and turned them into weapons to oppress women and exclude women and make men superior. And, and what I want to do is, is spend some time just showing that that's not what's going on. So part two here is I just want to make some observations, share some lessons from the text. I actually have six points I want to make here. And I think it's going to be helpful if I introduce you to these two. All right. So here you got, this is, these are my friends, Penelope and Adonis. They're not real, by the way. I made them up. They're from Corinth. They grew up there. They were from two different families. Their parents abandoned them at birth and left them at the temple of Aphrodite up on the mountain. And from about age 12, their whole lives revolved around the temple and prostitution and making men happy. And now Penelope is, she's breathtakingly beautiful. She's stunning. But so is Adonis. And for most of Adonis's life, he had like gorgeous long hair, flowing beautiful robes, and he wore a veil just like the women at the temple. And Adonis and Penelope, they were inseparable. They grew up together. They became Christians together. Then they fell in love they got married, they got baptized together. And as they started to like learn more about Jesus, they adopted some new customs and they, just, they learned to get rid of some other customs. But one thing that, that didn't change is Adonis really struggled and he never forgave himself for getting his hair cut. He misses his hair. And so there are some Sundays when they're on their way to their house church and when he's walking with Penelope, he'll kind of elbow her and he'll say like, you know, honey, I don't mean to put too much pressure, but like when it's our turn and they ask us to pray and prophesy, you know what? I'm putting my veil on. I don't care. And I think you should take yours off. It'll be just like old times. The people will think we're just like, you know, those uppity Roman couples. Don't you, don't you think that would be so great? And so he's putting this pressure on her. And in that setting, here comes Paul's letter. Okay. And Paul has an instruction for them. And Paul's instruction is, that, no. No, no. Like when the leader asks, hey, Adonis, would you pray for us, brother? Then I want you to stand up. I want you to uncover your head and I want you to pray for us. And then when the, when the leader asks Penelope, sister, would you prophesy for us? Would you pray and would you prophesy for us? What is it the Lord wants you to, to, to share with us? When it's your turn, you go ahead and you stand up, but you pop up that veil and you share whatever it is that God has laid on your heart. Now, I get it if, if a lot of you, you hear that and you're like, man, this is not a thing. Like, this is not a question I'm, I'm wrestling with. And you're like, in the middle of a pandemic, I've got 99 problems and covering or uncovering my head in worship is not one of them. And I totally get that. But this is part of the book, right? This is part of God's word. And I think it's actually helpful to see why this custom mattered so much to Paul. I've got six reasons I want to share quickly. The first reason is in order to show our theology, okay? The head covering shows our theology. So I want to jump in at verse 3 where Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of, every, of, the, head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So those words, words matter. And, and this here is about headship. This is about a theological category or, or, or idea called headship. And there's just, you know, we could spend the whole morning just talking about this word headship and what it means. Because there's a lot of debate about whether head here means uh, leader or, or whether it means source or origin. Like is, is, God, is man the, the, the leader of woman or is man the source or the, the, or the origin of, of women? And, and, so, and, and that's a very important, complicated conversation that I don't want to minimize. We just can't really get into it as, as much as I'd like the thing is, it matters because if Paul means leader on, on one hand, then it's, some people think that that makes men superior. But if Paul means source, then, he's, then the man is not superior. It's, it's not a, there's no sort of hierarchy there. And, and you know, for what it's worth, if you really push me, I would say that at different parts of this passage, Paul seems to be talking about uh, both, like both actually are, are helpful. And I know that that's kind of the Geneva answer isn't what I like to put forward, but it's actually true. I'm actually kind of 80-20 on this. 80% uh, head as leader, 20% head as source. And the reason is because however God is the head of Christ, in that way, Christ is the head of man. And in that way, 
man is the head of woman. So it's, it's not a slam dunk, but that's, that's, how, that's where I, I, I lean, uh, that man is the head of woman. Not men are the head of women, not husbands are the heads of wives in this passage, but man is the head of woman. And, and the reason we can say that is because theologically, and this is kind of you know Christianity 101, God is not the source of Jesus. God is not the source of Christ. Christ and God are 100% equal, but during his life, during his incarnation, Jesus took the role, took on the position. He became a servant and a helper in the mission for the purposes of, of God. And, and somebody who I think has been really helpful on this subject is Kathy Keller from Manhattan. She says that Christ was equal with the Father, yet took a submissive subordinate role. If Jesus was equal to the Father in being, but became voluntarily and temporarily subordinate to the Father in role, why would it be either inherently contradictory or unjust for women to do the same in marriage or in the church? So, this I'm not saying this is like a slam dunk, but I do think that whether you use the language of hierarchy or call it order, call it position, what Paul has just done here is he has shown that there can be equality, like full equality, and there can be distinction or hierarchy. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive. And it seems that that is the theology that is proclaimed in the symbol of the head covering. So that's the first reason. The second reason is this. It's a protection of dignity. It's a protection of dignity. Paul says, verse 4, Every man who prophesies or prays with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. And he goes on, but this is about, this is actually hard to understand. It's, it's, it's tough. This is dense stuff. I get it. But this is about dishonor and shame. Okay? Like in that culture, Adonis is, uh, his covered head, that means something. Like that says something about God. It says something about the kind of man that Adonis is. And Penelope's uncovered head says something about her. It says something about God and about the kind of woman that she is. And to be totally honest, we don't know what the meaning of the symbol in those cultures was. We don't know that. We don't have that. But we actually don't need it. Because we know that in Paul's view, it was negative. Okay? It communicated something that wasn't good. And we know the effect is that instead of the people in the house church praying along and, and, and listening along as Penelope and Adonis are, pre, are, are praying and prophesying, the, uh, they, they are distracted and they're going like, wait a minute, her head's naked. I didn't, I didn't think she was that kind of woman. Wait a minute, why is his head covered? I didn't realize he's that kind of guy. Like, what, what's going on here? I didn't think we were that kind of church. And so there is this cultural argument for the practice of head covering in, in Corinth. There's a third reason. It's, it shows God's glory. It's about God's glory. So verse 7, probably not everybody's favorite verse here, but it's worth the work. So listen to this. Paul says, A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Again, tough verse. I mean, let me give you my best effort to help us make sense of this. In verse 7, if you, I think you can see it on the screen in front of you, or you've got it in your Bible in front of you. So just to answer this question, Man is the glory of who? Man's the glory of God, okay, in, in, in verse 7. Woman is the glory of whom? She's the glory of man, according to Paul here. Now, but man is the image of whom? So man is the image of God, and now woman is the image of whom? Is woman the image of man? No. Woman is not the image of man. He doesn't say it, but Paul expects that you and I know that men and women are, the, are both equally the image of God. And that's important. It's actually important because people haven't always agreed that that's true, that men and women are both made in the image of God. Augustine, a few hundred years after this, he said, woman was given to man, woman who was of small intelligence and was perhaps still lives more in accordance with the promptings of the flesh than by superior reason. And Augustine asks, is this why the Apostle Paul does not attribute the image of God to her? So you can go ahead and you can boo. But just so you know, this is important. Like, people haven't always even agreed. People weren't even in the church weren't always even willing to grant that women bear the image of God. 
And that's not what Paul says. Paul says both are God's image, but there is an order that seems to glorify God and reflect God. Her head, her veiled head, it points and reflects the man. His unveiled head reflects back to God. So it's not about your glory. It's not about making you look good, Adonis. It's about God's glory. That's what the head covering does. It's about God's glory. There's a fourth reason. It's a sign of creation. Okay? It's a sign from creation. Uh, Verse 8. Man did not come from woman. Okay? For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels. Again, I know this is dense stuff. This is tough, but... But Paul is, Paul's argument here is because man and woman, okay, not men and women, but because man and woman are made from different stuff, that is what should be reflect. That's what's reflected in this head covering uh, deal. So this is this goes back to Genesis chapter two, where at creation, and and it seems like maybe the angels were involved in this somehow. Maybe they're watching this. You know, they've got the they've got the. This is in their Netflix playlist, and they're watching along. But and, and that's why we should get this right. But in Genesis two, Adam, the man, he was made from dust, and Eve was formed as his helper. She was formed to be his partner and his his, his complement and his some old versions say his his helpmeet. But uh, but he was made from the dust. She was made actually from Adam's spare parts. She was formed, and and so they have a different origin, and they're they're made of different stuff. And it seems that the veil is a reminder of that. Okay, it seems that the veil is a reminder of that, of of creation. It's also a sign of cooperation. And this is where it changes. And this is a big deal. Because in verse 11, Paul says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So this is actually a game changer for men and women and for manhood and womanhood. Because this isn't asking, uh, like, who has the power in the church? Like, who has all the rights? Who has the authority? Who gets to do all the fun stuff? What this is saying is, you guys, man and woman can't function in the church independent of one another because man and woman aren't meant to be independent of each other. Like, that's how it is in the Lord. That's what, it, that's what a church in the Lord is supposed to look like. Man and woman serving together, not independent, but dependently, interdependently. And that's how it's supposed to be in the Lord. Like, there's, there's cooperation. There's mutuality. There's this, like, lifting of each other up. Okay? So, somebody who's been really helpful for me on this is a, is a scholar named Cynthia Long Westfall. She actually is a, is a prof over at the Divinity College just up the road here. She says that what Paul, she boils it down, says what Paul gives us here is an explicit statement of mutuality, interdependence, and reciprocity in male-female relationships. And her book, Paul and Gender, is so, so helpful for me on this stuff. So, so the, the head covering here, it's a sign of that cooperation between man and woman in Jesus. And the final reason for it is this. It's a sign of our identity. It's a sign of identity. Verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a, a, a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory? And he, he sort of re- repeats some of the ideas he's shared already. Long hair is given to her as a covering. And verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, this is kind of interesting here. This goes beyond Penelope and Adonis, okay? Paul is pointing here to something that's embedded in, in verse 14, if you hope you see this, in the very nature of things. Like Paul's invoking here something that is like intrinsic, something that's very, that's essential to what it means to be woman and what it means to be man. Like because of the nature of things, this is how I want you to adorn yourselves as you Corinthians worship. So you might call that manhood and womanhood. You might. But I recognize that that language, it, we, we trip over that. It's not, it's not language that the Bible gives us, but the concept is there. 
okay? Like the idea is there. The Gospel Coalition didn't invent the idea of manhood and womanhood. The Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood didn't invent those ideas. If these ideas, if the concept of woman and the concept of man, if, if those concepts aren't right here in the text, then the symbol makes no sense and, the, and Paul's argument falls apart. In fact, let me invite you to go back over this, this chapter and just look at the pronouns and the nouns that Paul uses. By the way, I'll say this. If your Bible doesn't, doesn't say woman but says wives, it's a bad translation. Okay, there are, I know that there are some translations that do that. And, and what some translators have done is they've, in order to make this seem more bearable or more understandable, they've taken some theological license and interpreted it through sort of a more conservative lens. This it, Paul is not talking about just men and women per se. And he's not talking about husbands and wives. He's not talking about pastors and congregants. He's talking about something essential and intrinsic to man and, and woman itself. He's saying gender looks like something, and that's what the very nature of things tells us. That's what, that's what veiling is about, and that's what unveiling is about. And that's why, I think it's interesting, he ends with this, uh, this interesting warning about being contentious. Like, guys, let's not fight about this thing. I get it. It's not easy. But can we not be contentious about this thing? Like, this is the way. All right? And I don't want to be contentious either. I don't want to be contentious, but I do have a question. Like, I've got a warning for us. There's a, I think there's a warning that we need to hear about lazy Bible work. Okay? My question here is really, what about stereotypes? What about stereotypes? Like, isn't there a danger uh, in a passage like this, like when we talk about the very nature of things, that we're going to create stereotypes? Isn't that, isn't that a risk? Because, like... I know women who've grown up in church world who've, who've shared their experience with me and maybe they were too, too uh, sporty, maybe they were a little bit too butch, maybe they were too intelligent, maybe they were too outspoken and opinionated. And, and I know guys who, grew up in, guys who grew up in church world and, um, and maybe they were a little bit too effeminate or maybe too artsy or maybe they were a little bit too nerdy or maybe they were into art and poetry and stuff. And either side, they didn't match this stereotype of manhood and womanhood that church world has created. And it would be really easy to universalize what Paul says in verse 14 about the nature of things and make it say that in all settings, in all times, men should be uncovered and women should be covered. And here's what I think we need to do with that. We need to ask, to ask Paul, should our women, should our men be covered and uncovered in our time, in our context? And I think if we could ask Paul that, what he would say to us is, well, it depends. It depends. What do, the, what does, what do hairstyles mean in your culture? What's the meaning of, this, of the symbol? And what, like, what, like Mike is wearing a hat. What does wearing a hat mean? What does it say? And I think if we could, if if he could ask us that, if we were honest, we'd have to go. It actually it doesn't say anything. These it, these things actually don't mean anything. Like a woman with short hair, that doesn't say anything necessarily about her. A man who's got his head covered during church, that doesn't say anything necessarily about him. I think Paul's answer for us would be in that case, in your context, no, this wouldn't help you. This is a solution to a problem that you guys are not facing. And I'm not saying that this has, doesn't have application for our context. It does. I mean, if I were to show up for worship and if I were wearing like a, a full police uniform, that's a symbol that says something. That has meaning for us, right? That, that would distract some of you. If I showed up and if I had like an indigenous headdress on, that would be distracting, right? If I showed up in like, if I wore high heels to visit you sometime, you'd, you'd be like, You'd be distracted by that because these are all symbols. These all say something. There's a culture, okay? These things are signs that say something within a culture. And, and there isn't, I'm, and I'm saying there isn't a single uh, unanimous expression of manhood and womanhood that transcends every culture and every time. Like manhood and womanhood, it looks certain ways, but it does that in certain ways in Corinth and in certain ways in Jerusalem. And it looks, it looks like something in Rome that it doesn't look like in Athens. And manhood and womanhood look like something in Hamilton. 
And that's why we don't have a rule in our church about, uh, you know, saying no hats for men and only long hair for women. And that's the warning. The warning here is about lazy Bible work. It's about lazy interpretation. If we, if we draw a straight line from New Testament churches and their, their problems to our problems, if we draw a straight line from that culture to ours, we will inevitably create stereotypes and we will create more problems than it, than it solves. So that's the warning. And if that's true, if, I think, if that's what I think, then why did we spend this time going through this passage? And it, the reason is, check, look, check this out, because of what, it, what we need to remember about complementarianism and egalitarianism themselves. Like, listen to this. Complementarians love a passage like this because it shows you can have gender distinctions and you can have equality at the same time. Like, complementarians love that stuff. Complementarians love that, you, that these distinctions solve a problem in church. Like, I've got a problem. Okay, so I'm going to draw a line between men and women. Complementarians love that. Like women, you do this. Men, you do that. But there's a problem here for complementarians. And the, the problem is that this passage forces complementarians to make more room for women in the public ministry of the church than most complementarians are actually kind of comfortable with. Do you see that? Like Paul could have said in this passage, I do not permit a woman either to pray or to prophesy in the church. He could have. He easily could have said that. He, does, he doesn't. And if you want to make men superior, what Paul actually says here is a problem. Paul expects that both Penelope and Adonis are praying and speaking on behalf of God in the public gathering. And there's no distinction between how they're serving. And that is a problem. That's a problem for complementarianism. It's not the only only problem for complementarians, I'll say, but uh, you can ask me about that later. It, but the problem here fundamentally is it seems that Paul is too liberal. He's a little bit too permissive and progressive for a lot of complementarians. On the other hand, I know that there's a lot of egalitarians who love this passage, and they love that it supports the, the full participation of women in public worship. It, uh, In fact, it goes even further because what Paul says about the interdependence and the cooperation of, of men and women in the Lord, the cooperation of man and woman in the Lord, that actually, that does something really radical and elevates the status of women in the church, in the early church, in ways that are really surprising to a lot of people. That would have been, it would have been really surprising to a lot of Paul's contemporaries. So this is a great passage for equality. It really is. But there's a problem for egalitarians here too. And the problem is that Paul doesn't overturn these gender distinctions. He reinforces them. He doesn't get rid of them. He, he, he reinforces them. And so for that reason, there are some people who, who, are, who kind of challenge Paul because he, he's too conservative. He's maybe too like patriarchal. Because Paul could have said, like we know that Paul could have said, you guys are free in Christ. Like manhood and womanhood, that is not, those are not helpful distinctions anymore. We are free in Christ to unveil or unveil. You guys figure it out. And if people misinterpret, that's their problem. That's not what he does. Paul keeps the distinction. He keeps the tradition, unlike what he does with the tradition of circumcision. That's for another sermon. But what Paul can do is Paul can look at a church and he can say to one group of people in that church, he can say, for you people, this is what God has for you. And for you people over here, this is what God has for you. And it has nothing to do with who is superior or who's more competent or intelligent or godly. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. And so from our 21st century position, we come to this passage and we are like, don't men and women have equal rights before God? And Paul's like, that is the last thing that this text is about. Like, that is the last question that this is trying to answer. We're not just equal, man and woman. We are better than equal. Man and woman are essential to each other. Man is as essential to woman as Eve is to Adam. Okay? Man, manhood and womanhood are as essential to one another as Christ is to God. That's a big deal. And that's what Paul envisions being lived out in this church and in ours. Not like a 50-50 split in, in who serves and how, but a 100-100 involvement between uh, man and woman. And so what I hope we see here, 
I hope, boiling it all down, Paul is neither egalitarian nor is he complementarian. If anything, if you want to use any label for Paul, I think you could say he is Trinitarian. Let me say that again. Paul is neither complementarian nor egalitarian. He is Trinitarian. And here's why this matters. What I'm saying, what I'm making a case for is that at the end of the day, there is actually very limited value in us hitching our wagons to either of these systems or its labels or its heroes, okay? And and that is a shift for some of us, and myself included. Because for some time, I've been the guy who said stuff like, hey, we don't need Christian feminism. We don't, we don't borrow anything from Christian feminism that isn't already there in Scripture. Jesus is as pro-woman as we could possibly hope for, and so is the Bible. So we don't need to borrow anything from, from Christian feminism. Just look to Jesus. I've said things like that. I've, but I know that I have blind spots. I have blind spots, and I know that I haven't nearly been as, as critical of patriarchy and of complementarianism as I have been of feminism and of egalitarianism. And those same things that I was saying about egalitarianism and Christian feminism, I should have been saying about my own camp. I should have been, and I didn't. The truth is this. If I never use the term or the label, if I never wear the label complementarian again, I actually lose nothing. I actually have lost nothing if I do that. But for for too many people, this thing is like the creed. This is like the fence around the gospel. This is the fence around the the church. It's a deal breaker. It is a test of who is orthodox and who is a heretic. This is the the issue that opens some doors to to members, and it is the issue that closes some doors to to members. And church, I just want to say, that is not okay. That is not the way of Jesus. And anything that has that much sway over our faith and our unity and our mission that isn't Jesus has got to be an idol. It's got to be an idol. And I'm just calling out, I think that there's lots of idolatry on both sides to go around. And I'm trying, I'm learning, I'm trying to put my idolatry in this issue down. Are you? Like, are we? Are we as a church, are we willing to put our idols down? I just want to remind us that the gospel is neither complementarian nor egalitarian. All of these frameworks, all these labels and and, and teams, all they can do is help give us answers to questions about permission and power and rights. And the gospel says, in the kingdom, man and woman actually have no advantage as man and woman. What happens in the kingdom is that the ones who are put down are lifted up. And Jesus says, you know who's first in my kingdom is the last. Like it's, it's upside down. The one who's at the bottom is the top. And Jesus says, you know how, you know how we show greatness in my kingdom? You know how we measure who's, who's the great, greatest and who's the most important? It's the person who's on the ground washing disgusting feet. That's how we measure greatness in my kingdom. Jesus is the guy who had all the power. And he laid it down so that others could flourish. And that is why... When you and I study scripture and we look at the ministry of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, they are both surrounded by men and women who are serving in every way and at every level of leadership. There is mutuality, there is equality, there is unity, and there is love. And that is why what I want to do as I close is share some words of hope for a divided church. Some words of hope for us as a church, okay? Going back a few years, I remember a conversation in 2016 with a, with, a, with a friend of mine, Trevor. Some of you have met him. He's a he's a, a church planting mentor of mine. And he knew that I was eager to start a church. And at the time, I was really struggling, really in a lot of turmoil about how I'd felt excluded and made fun of and really kind of mistreated by a lot of the egalitarians that I knew. And, and through tears, I shared that with him. And that one of the things that I thought we could achieve if we plant a church together, you know, one of the things that this church is going to do, like no other church, is we're going to recover God's design for biblical manhood and womanhood in the church. Like, I might have used that language. I might have used some of that language with you early on. And you know what Trevor said? He said, yeah, don't do that. Don't do, don't do that. That's a, that's a terrible idea. Like, you can't do that. 
I was, nobody had ever said anything like that to me before. I was like, what are you talking about? And he explained, that's not a church. Like the center of that can't hold. You can, you can orient, you can gather, you can, you know, you can unify a, 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 a church around a, a shared view of Jesus. You know, you can orient and, and you can gather a church uh, and unify a church around a common sense of mission in a city, but you cannot unify a, a church around a shared set of beliefs about gender roles. That will not last. That will not work. That is not a church. And nobody had ever said that to me. And five years later, I still think about this all the time. And so let me close with some words of, of just some application, some hope First for women, for complementarians, for egalitarians, and for us as Benediction Church. Thank you for your attention. We're, we're, we are wrapping up here. Here's a word to women, okay? Women, you don't need permission to serve. You need a place, okay? You don't need permission. You need a place. And, and I'm learning that one of my failures in ministry is that I didn't confront patriarchy, and, uh, and, and I regret that. I didn't make it clear what the differences are between what I believed in those days and what I what what is being said by traditionalist, chauvinist, misogynist, sexist uh, patriarchy. And if you're in a church or in a marriage uh, or in a, some kind of churchy Christian setting where you are disrespected or ignored or sidelined because you are a woman, that is not okay. And I just want to say, all of you here and all listening, I would be honored to hear your story and maybe use some of what I have um, learned to help. I'm not done learning, but I, what I have learned, I believe, isn't just for me, but it's for us as a church. And I believe that it is for the church. So that's a word to women. And now I have a, a question for complementarians. A question for complementarians. Just to be clear, because I know you're asking, this isn't a divorce. All right. But there is work to do. There's work to do, because if there isn't complementarity, it isn't complementarian. It's something else. If there isn't complementarity in your context, then it's it's something other than complementarianism. And I get a lot of us are doing the best that we can as leaders, as pastors. But you simply can't draw a straight line from New Testament church practices to ours. It's just lazy. Scripture won't let you do that. The meaning of head coverings is different. Leadership, it's, it's different. Church structures are different. Elders and pastors are different. Teaching looks different than it did back then. And all of that shouldn't confuse us. It should humble us. And so my question for complementarians is this. Complementarians, do you say yes where you can and only say no where you biblically have to? Or, complementarians, will you say no as often as you possibly can And will you only say yes when you are biblically forced to? That's my question for complementarians. But I've also got a question for egalitarians. My question for egalitarians is this. Suppose for the sake of argument that God has designed the church with certain gender-based distinctions in mind, okay? Just for the sake of argument. Suppose that he did. My question is, would that make you trust God less? Like, would he be less good? So, so like, maybe you're not persuaded that Scripture today uh, has, like, an abiding distinction for, between man and woman, but is God allowed to make such a distinction? Is he allowed to? Or would that, or would that cost him your worship? So that's my question for egalitarians. And I'll just finish with this, a word for you, Benediction Church, for all of us who are part of this thing. I just want to, I want to say, like, if, if after this I get emails or phone calls from people out there, and I expect I will, I've already gotten a few just for what it's worth. But if that happens, I'm not too worried because I'm not their pastor. I'm your pastor. And, and, and my burden is to see that each of you is set free to serve and that every man-made barrier uh, between us is removed. So an example that comes to mind real quick is Emily Wright, godly woman. She's a part of our leadership team, which is our like it's our highest leadership structure in the church. And a couple of weeks ago, Emily, I hope you don't mind if I if I share this. In our in our last leadership team meeting a couple of weeks ago, we're talking about something. I don't even remember exactly what, but we needed to come up with a solution and I offered one. I proposed a sort of a way forward. It was actually a terrible idea. 
It was a terrible idea. And and Emily was one of the people, she she actually took the initiative, she actually pushed back, she she challenged my arguments, and she was really kind and gentle about it, far more gentle and kind than I'm than I might have been. But and, and then she actually had a way better idea. And she was right. She was right. And we went with her idea and and I loved it. I think that's how it should be. That is how it should be. If there is any abiding gender distinction in the church, it is not there. If there is, a, if there is still a distinction, it's what's coming up actually in a few weeks uh, when we look at chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. That's not where we are today, so you're going to have to come back and join us then. This reminds me of when my son Jamie goes, dun, dun, dun. What I want to honestly say, though, is I want to thank you, church. I want to thank you for being patient with me as I wrestle with these things. And like, I know that for some of you, this isn't even a thing. You're just like, like, Molesky took you long enough, for goodness sakes. I know that for others of us, this is, it's pretty uncomfortable. It's got to be pretty uncomfortable to have to hear leaders who are raising questions like this. And, and I just want to say to everybody who's, who's part of this thing, thank you for letting this be a conversation that we have in community. Thank you for not making this a a fence uh, around Benediction Church, but something that we can wrestle with together in community. I really believe that that is the way of Jesus. The final word goes to Michelle Lee Barnwall. She wrote an awesome book called Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian. Couldn't recommend it more highly, but here's what she says. With this, I close. The goal for both sides can be to make the more fundamental consideration not personal benefit or position, but the imitation of Christ in the willingness to suffer a loss for the benefit of others. This speaks to the larger goal of love and unity in the corporate body as the church models the example of Christ for a watching world. Oh man, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.